Good morning. I am glad to be here with you all, and um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Lynette. I'm the pastor to Children and Families, but now I get to stand up instead of being down here with the kids for the kids' message, and I may talk a little longer, so prepare yourself. Um, if you were here with us last week, we had a really powerful morning with our Immigrant and Refugee Sunday. We had just amazing stories being shared and really challenges to us as well as we're reaching out. And as I have read scripture, um, I've been in classes that say, what is the theme of the Bible? And one of the things I saw coming out more and more that I've read is that God's heart is for the foreigner, for the orphan, for the widow, for those on the margins. And so to spend a Sunday really focusing on that was really good for us and a good challenge for us. We are in a series. Let's see if I can make it work. We're in a series right now looking at the six new values that have come from uh, collaboration with the leadership team, the staff, and ministry team leaders. It was really interesting how it happened. We all went up to this mountain, and there was like thunder and lightning, and the six values came down on these stone tablets, and we're like, that's it. Those are the ones. That was a Bible nerd joke. Um <laughs> It wasn't Sinai. So we have been spending time discerning in prayer. Leadership team started the process. Staff kind of joined in and ministry team leaders in there. And we landed on six values. And we have just been covering, so far we've done multi-ethnic and genuine. And then the next... So sorry. I won't move. The next two weeks we're going to be talking about intergenerational and what that means um, to be a community that's intergenerational. And I think... Um, Maybe you're worried that the children's pastor is covering intergenerational, and so we're only going to talk about kids, and I was worried about that too. So I'm hoping that we get a full picture. And um, as I've been a part of West Hills, our family's been here for more than three years. I've been on staff for almost three years. And one of the things that has really kept us here is um, the generations that come together on a Sunday morning and throughout the week to encourage and support one another. When Jaron and I have both done a lot of research into what helps kids and youth have faith that stays through the duration of their lives and into adulthood, and one of the key factors is worshiping in a community where more than one generation or two generations are present. And, so, and when they're not all segregated out. So the youth don't go down to the basement and the children go to their programs and the adults are here. And oddly enough, this is one of those Sundays where we have sent off the children to the far reaches of the building, and our middle schoolers are away at a retreat. So it might feel like we're a little homogenous this morning. Um, there are some teenagers in our midst. You can stare at them awkwardly at this time. <laughs> but one of the things that we were so impressed with was, like, Soren Linseth sharing a sermon during his confirmation process and hearing from people who have been here for 40 years and could tell me a mazillion stories about all the different things West Hills has done. And I want us to understand the privilege and gift it is to have the generations represented in our community, to have this broad spectrum from um, soon-to-be-born babies and toddlers all the way up into their 90s, and um, how important that is for a community that's going to thrive, and from a, um, a place of being a children's pastor, a place where their faith can get the grounding it needs so it can last a lifetime. 
And as we're talking about intergenerational, I want to share a couple things of what it is not. So it's more than simply coexisting with one another. It's more than just going, here are the older people or the elders, here are the, the middle-aged people, the um, youngers, and then the students. And the, we're all kind of in the room together, but we're just coexisting or tolerating one another. Um, and it's more than just gathering on occasion to be together. So that now and then we have these sort of intermingling of the generations, but it's not the norm in our community. Instead, I want us to see it as a community where all generations intentionally connect with, encourage, learn from, serve, and worship with one another across generational divides. It's this coming together and being able to see yourself not only as a guide or a teacher, but also as a student and a learner. So when I come to this community, when I think of myself as belonging to West Hills, there's something that I have to offer and give, and there's ways that I can receive. And that's not just from an older generation, but it's across generations. So there's something that the younger generation can give to me, and there's something I can give to someone else. Does that make sense? And as I was thinking through this process and this giving and this receiving, I thought of this um, icon. This is by Scott Erickson, who was here not long ago, and his artwork we've been using the last two years for our Stations of the Cross outside on the building. And he um, posted this picture, and I, as I looked at it, I thought, yes, like that's it. This is a, tr a, a series of new icons he's been working on, and this is one for the Trinity. And it's this idea that the mystery of the Trinity, we can't conceptualize it fully in our heads, but it's this idea that in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit are pouring themselves into the other and receiving fully from the other. And that giving and receiving unites them fully to become one. If your head goes, huh? It should. It's weird and it's a mystery to us. But it's this idea, and I want us to be able to look at this picture and, and give it some time to kind of percolate in your head, because we are made in the image of God, not only as individuals, but as a community. And so we're called to this sort of giving and receiving that we see in the community. And as I was thinking about this too, in the Trinity is actual generations, because God chooses to identify as Father and Son, and it's often talked about of the Spirit is the love mediated between the two. And so we have these generations, even in the Trinity, that are submitting to one another and giving and receiving to the other. I want to show you, I want to share a story about how this has come, and I can picture this in my own life. So on the left is me, uh, um, it was probably like a year ago, <laughs> and my grandma Dolores, Grandma Anderson, and that's my grandpa Anderson, and I didn't have a picture where they were kind of both smiling together, so that's just two pictures. And this is a picture of my grandpa when he, probably about two years before he passed away. They're both, um, they have both died, but these two people are pillars of faith in my mind. So when I think of them, I think of their faith that has grounded me. And it's interesting, um, I had to check with my mom, but I, this is a true story. So when my um, brother was, he's three years older than me, when he was in early elementary, my grandparents had at one time been a part of the church, but then abandoned the church. They did not raise their seven sons in faith. And... Um, didn't have any sort of faith 
commitment, faith experience at that time. My brother, we were part of a church. My brother asked my grandparents, as kids often do, he said, Grandma, Grandpa, why don't you go to church? Without any tact about it. And so they um, began coming to our church and participating in our church. And so I'm just three years younger, but one of my earliest memories is going to Awanas, which is like a kid's program where you memorize a bunch of scripture and play games where you run around in a circle. And I remember, so in my mind, I can picture the basement sort of gym in our church, and my grandma is in her Awanas vest or whatever it was, and she's standing as like in the center of this game, and kids are whirling around her. But she is this pillar and this leader in the faith, the earliest faith community I knew. And um, my brother was the one, his question sparked that journey and sparked them coming back to church and coming back into their faith. So um, fast forward a little bit. In eighth grade, I've got to put together this, we all put together these binders, and I think it was like alphabetical. So for each letter, we came up with something about ourselves. And um, eighth grade Lynette was very on fire for Jesus. I also kind of wanted to be in a punk band. So I had like all the what would Jesus do bracelets up my arms and I wore like, maybe not this early. I used to wear like blue mascara and anyway, John could tell you stories. But I was really on fire for Jesus, very zealous for God. And so like I'm going through this book and like every chance I can get, I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the B was for Bible and J was for Jesus and C was for church. But it was like this, like just this girl who had a giant crush on Jesus telling her about it. And my grandpa and my grandma had come to this event to see our binders in eighth grade. And I get this letter from my grandpa not long after that says, I pray for all my children and my grandchildren that they would have faith in Christ. And now that I see that you have faith in Christ, I will be praying for that faith to continue and to grow. So I have this letter from my grandpa and this knowledge that not only had he been praying for me before he even knew where my faith was at, but he would continue and be committed to praying. And I love how it's an image for me of how these generations come together, that the simple question from my brother sparked a faith in my grandparents that their leadership in the church then became a pillar for me of what it meant to follow Jesus. And my grandpa was praying for my faith, which was sustained throughout middle school into high school and on even till now. And, um, but that I have these two people who as just these like standards in my life. And I remember my grandma always reading scripture and she said I would read a chapter in the New Testament, a chapter in the Old Testament, and a psalm and a proverb every day. So I ha they built for me an understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. And I love how that all commingles with how my brother interacted with their faith and how the generations can come together. As I was preparing for this, I thought, I want to give the biblical foundation for this idea of intergenerational. But guess what? If you go in the scriptures, there's no, like, chapter on intergenerational ministry, okay? There's no, like, section on what it means to be intergenerational, partly because there was no American nuclear family ideal in the scripture. We kind of insert what it means, mom and dad and 2.4 kids, into what the Bible is telling us about families. But that was not a vision for scripture. And so there's no like solid place I could point you to that would say, now the, the generation should be united 
and serve one another and worship together. That was in Habakkuk 2.4, right? Like, it's not in there. And so we have to be careful when we kind of come to Scripture with our agenda and say, okay, Scripture, this is what I want you to say. And then we sort of put on there, like, okay, this is where you say it, and this is what God is telling us to do. And oddly enough, it's affirming my view at the beginning, right? Does that make sense? Like, when we come to Scripture with our agenda, somehow our agenda is often affirmed. Um, so we can't do that. But what I wanted, what I did was sort of think through Scripture, and I came up with, there's, I won't share it all with you. If you buy me a cup of coffee, I will Bible geek you out, and I will tell you all the different passages I came up with, okay? But I'm going to give you the abridged version, and I want to talk about two kingdoms. So um, not far long ago, I was thinking about, we were studying in Sunday school the different kings in Israel, and I thought, well, what was it that actually caused the kingdom of Israel to split? Okay, so the kingdom of Israel splits between Israel and Judah. I'm like, when did that happen? What's going on? And it happens right after Solomon. So Solomon dies. He's the, king of, the son of David. Solomon dies, and then his son, Rehoboam, is going to take over. And there's this other guy in the mix who wants to be king instead. And so all the people are coming to Rehoboam, and they're saying, okay, Solomon was really hard on us. He caused us to be taxed heavily. He kind of built up all this wealth for himself off of our backs. And they're asking Rehoboam, what kind of king will you be for us? So Rehoboam goes to the elders and he says, what should I say? And the elders tell him, be merciful. Like your father was hard on the people. If you want them to follow you, be merciful. And he says, give me three days, I'm going to think about it. Then he goes to his peers and he says, all right, what should I say to the people? And you've got to go back and read this story. It's so interesting. I know you will. It's in 1 Kings 12. He says, what should I say? He talks to his peers. What should I say to these people? They say, you should tell these people, if you think Solomon was tough on you, just wait and see what I can do. It says, my pinky is thicker than my father's waist. Right? And so he, Rehoboam takes both the elders the elder's advice, and he takes the peer's advice, and whose does he go with? I'm not moving. Um, whose advice do you think he goes with? The peer's. He goes with the peer's advice. And it says in the scriptures that this is from God, but I think there's something to be gleaned from the fact that he ignored his elders. And the people of Israel say, Forget you, we don't need you. And they split off into their own kingdom. And Rehoboam has only got Judah and like half of another tribe. Okay? Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. So there's one kingdom. And another kingdom we see after the transfiguration of, of Jesus, he comes back down from the mountain and his disciples are arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows about their kind of squabbling and he takes a child and has the child stand at the center of the group of the disciples. And Jesus says to them, if you want to become part of the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a child. And they're squabbling and they're trying to figure out, who, you know, kind of posturing themselves as the next leader or whatever. And Jesus takes a child as the example for them. So scripture is not going to give us a clear-cut answer to this idea of what it means to be intergenerational. It's going to be a mix of both. It's going to be the elders speaking into the younger group. It's going to be the children setting an example for us of who we should be. 
But as we're in the Gospels and thinking about Jesus' treatment of children, I want to pull in onto a passage of Scripture that's usually relegated to that Sunday after Christmas when, you know, like no one's around. (laughs) Everyone kind of stayed home. And I hope it doesn't feel like uh, the Christmas decorations up at Costco. Okay? We're going to read together Luke 2, um, 22 through 35. Here it is. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So what's going on here? In the law, it was said that after 40 days, um, a woman has to come and offer a sacrifice to be purified after giving birth. And then also, when you have a firstborn son, you have to offer a sacrifice um, for that child. And that, that goes back to when the Israelites were in Egypt. And in the last plague, if they didn't have the lamb's blood on their doorway for, um, what's that called? Passover. I'm like, it's not Pentecost. For Passover, that their firstborn, it's the firstborn of all the cattle, the animals, and the, ch- the sons were killed. And so from that point on in Israel, if you were following God and following the law, if you had a firstborn son, you had to offer a sacrifice for that child. So Mary and Joseph are devout parents. They're following the law. They come to the temple in Jerusalem to offer both the sacrifice for Mary's purification and also for Jesus. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts. So we've got Mary and Joseph, they're coming to the temple, and then there's this other man, Simeon, who's also present in this story. And it doesn't specifically say that Simeon was old, but kind of from the context, we can glean that he's older. And um, not only is he devout and like following the law, but we also see that he's had true encounters with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has given him a message that he would see the Messiah. And when it says in here the consolation of Israel, it's kind of an interesting term. Israel or Judah had been exiled, they'd been sent out, their temple had been destroyed, they'd been kind of brought back, but also ruled by other oppressive rulers and not ruling themselves. So they are waiting for this time when God would renew all things and bring them back into this place. And so when they say consolation of Israel, it's like the comfort of Israel, that no longer would they be ruled by oppressive rulers or exiled out of their home. Okay? So he's looking for that time, he's, and he's looking for the fulfillment of the prophecies that God has given to the people. And he's moved by the Spirit in this day, and he goes to the temple courts. <clears throat> when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, 
so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. If you think about it, this is a strange interaction. So I want us to sit for a little bit in each of the different places and the people here. I found this amazing picture. I understand Jesus was not white and blonde, okay? So just to say that from the start, but what I want us to really focus in on here is Simeon's face. Take time to look at his expression and how the painter has formed the story in this picture. We have this man who has followed every law for his entire life. He's had real encounters with the Spirit, and he trusts the Spirit's leading to come to the temple. Maybe he's waited his whole life. I don't know when that promise was given to him, but he's waited his whole life. And today is the day he comes to the temple. The Spirit leads him to Mary and Joseph, and he takes his child in his arms. And when he sees Jesus and holds that 40-day-old baby, he says, now my soul can depart in peace because I have seen the salvation of God in this child, in this baby. Do you know what Jesus said back to him? Aggle, flaggle, clabble. <laughs> um, Jesus, this is way before he starts his ministry. The water has not been turned to wine. The dead have not been raised. This is way before all that's going to happen. And Simeon looks at this child and says, Today my eyes have seen your salvation. He trusts in God and he finds contentment in, who, in the Christ child, that this infant is the fulfillment of the promises of God, right where he's at. Because the key point of Jesus is not all the things he did, but who he is. He is the divine son of God, come as human to save us all. So when he holds this infant, it doesn't have to be all the things he will do. In that moment, he is holding the Christ, the Messiah, and he praises God for it. He says, you, as you have promised, dismiss your, your servant in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. Now I want you to think about Mary and Joseph. If you're a parent and can kind of go back in your memory to those early days with your first kid, how did you feel? For most of us, we're a nervous wreck. And we're like, does he, did he poop? Does he have to eat? Maybe it's too gassy. Maybe he's not gassy enough. I don't know. Maybe take him to the doctor. Is that poop right? Is that what it's supposed to look like? And not only are Mary and Joseph doing this new first parenting thing, they're first parenting the Son of God. And after 40 days of trying to figure out how to parent the Son of God, they've got to go from their little town to the big city of Jerusalem and come to the temple to offer this sacrifice. And not only do they have to do that, but then this guy comes up to them. He's not a priest, so he's not like the official one who's doing the purification right. He is a guy in the temple, okay? And he comes up and he says, can I hold your baby? <laughs> so just think, I know like it's not good to put our American ideal onto things, but if you can put yourself in that place and go, hmm, Am I going to let this guy hold my baby? No, 
no, I am not going to let this guy hold my baby. But this is what they do. They submit and they are willing to um, give and do and participate with what God is calling in that moment. And so they allow their son to be held by this man. And they hear this blessing, which does not sound like much of a blessing. I have not been blessed in my life, and someone said, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Oh, man. It's interesting in Simeon's words, we see both the value of um, being multi-ethnic as he talks about Jesus being the salvation for all Gentiles, all nations coming together. And he also is pretty genuine here. He does not sugarcoat what's going to happen to Mary and Joseph and what their life is going to look like as the parents of the Son of God. And I want us to think about what it's like, how Jesus plays a role in this story. I kind of talked about it before. One of my pet peeves in talking about being intergenerational and including children in our communities is the kind of the term or the idea that they are the promise for the future. They are the ones who will one day lead. And what it is is we're giving kids like a waiting card. Like, could you just keep the seat warm until you're valuable enough to participate in our community? But what we see here in this story is that Simeon sees this child, holds this infant, and he is the salvation that God has promised. That this child does not need to do anything but be held to fulfill the promise to Simeon in his lifetime. And I want us to understand that children, infants, even up to our oldest adults in our community, you have value here because you are here. You have value here because God has called you. And it is not about, it is not sustained by anything you do for this community. Okay? Your worth is because of God's love. And that starts from the infants and it goes all the way up. As I began to um, think through what does this community look like, this um, community that gives and receives, that the, the Trinity gives and receives, I was looking at Paul's epistles and there's a couple different passages. In Ephesians 2, it says that Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles now being a peaceful community together. But I think there's something deeper there, too, to saying whatever divisions we sort of set up in our communities and our world, Jesus demolishes those and brings us together with his peace. And that's in Ephesians 2. In Philippians 2, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but instead value others above yourselves. And then we're going to read together this um, passage in Romans 12. Let me read it for you. It says, For the, by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. 
If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. When Paul envisions community, I think what he's saying in a lot of ways is the image of God is not an isolated event in each of us. The image of God really comes out in us when we are together, when we're working together. And just as Christ submitted to his disciples to even wash his feet and give his life, Paul is calling us to follow that, to not think of ourselves more highly. This is what I deserve. I've been here for this many years or Um, even I think I can come forth with a lot like the children should be valued and I don't want to value them over anyone else. The idea here is that we would be seeking to serve the other. And as we seek to serve the other, the other is seeking to serve the other. And as that other seeks to serve, they serve the other, which is us. So that our needs will be fulfilled if we trust to give to the other, if that makes sense. But what Paul is saying over and over again is that it's not just in self-preservation, but the community of Christ is one that pours out. And as we give, we also trust to receive from the other. As I was reading about intergenerational community, there's our definition again, but it's an idea, and this is really simple, but it takes three generations to be intergenerational. If that makes sense? It's kind of Trinitarian, which works well. So it can't just be like um, parents and kids, okay? Or it can't just be like grandparents and parents, or like older adults and adults, okay? We need three different generations coming together to care for and serve one another. And I was reading a, a book called, by John Westerhoff, which is um, titled, Will Our Children Have Faith? And he talks about how the third generation is the memory it's the tradition. It's the history. The first generation is the vision for what will come. And that middle generation is the present. I think of um, our current leadership team and how they're serving our body in a lot of different ways. And it's those three generations coming together to become this community where um, we are actually serving and modeling who Christ has called us to be. All three are needed and important. And as I was thinking that through, I um, watched this dystopian sci-fi kind of show called The Man in the High Castle. And the premise of the show is that the Nazis won World War II. And so it takes you to the 1960s in America, and you quickly figure out, like, this is not the America I know or have heard of. And so you've got the East Coast is ruled by um, German rule, and then the West Coast is ruled by Japanese rule. And there's this really powerful episode where the new Fuhrer is saying, we're going to start over in America. We're going to erase American history. We're going to have this thing called Yar Null, which is year zero. And the youth are the future. The youth are the center of this new vision. And so they begin, there's these really visceral images of them like taking the Liberty Bell and they melt it down. And then they're taking the Statue of Liberty and they're pulling it down to put up a new statue. And as like 
someone raised here, I was like, oh, you can't do that. But there's this, uh, this whole preoccupation with the future and with the youth, and they kind of let them run wild in this new, um, this new era. And then they take, so you're watching these images, and they juxtapose it with these images of this Jewish community that's in, this, uh, in the mountains, and they're disguising themselves as Catholics. And they're in this barn reading Torah and praying together in Hebrew. And they're talking about how this tradition is a 5,000-year tradition, and we have to uphold it. They're willing to risk everything to uphold this tradition. And so we've got these two warring ideas of like the future and the youth are the ones who will carry us forward and we can erase history. We don't need history. And you've got these people who are willing to risk everything to uphold their history and their identity. And what, when we look at our community, we need both. We need to understand that the tradition that we represent, the tradition that we practice when we have um, communion, when we baptize, when we confirm, we're upholding the tradition and the story that God has written. But also we have to know that we cannot do that all for ourselves into the future. And so our children are going to carry on that vision and that story as well. I was so moved by um, the eulogy that Barack Obama delivered for Elijah Cummings' funeral. And he, um, one of the quotes he had from Elijah Cummings, he said, Our children are the living messengers we send to a future we will never see. And so the story that we tell here in the present is what they will carry on into the future for us. But we have to be so true to what has come before us and to the place we are currently at in order for our kids to carry that story on into the future. Um, West Hills, we have been given a gift by the people I see here as I look across, by the middle schoolers who are coming back from their retreat, by the kids who have been sequestered off and they're doing different things today. This present time for our community is a gift that God has given us to have the generations together. And I'm so encouraged when I hear stories about those who are older caring for the youth and the students and the kids. I love seeing it happen as I serve alongside the adults who are serving our kids. We are doing so many amazing things to make sure that we are not just multi-generational, but that the generations are coming together to encourage and serve one another. So I want to encourage you first to say that we are doing this this value is a value because it's something that's already ingrained in us. But I also want to challenge us and say there's more that we can do. There's attitudes we can check, and there's things that, um, actions that we do that we can say, hmm, is that really serving the other? Is that trusting that if I give to this other generation that they will turn around and give to me? And are we helping our kids understand their position in serving and giving to our community? So if you have questions, stories, ideas about how this intergenerational piece fits into our community. I want to hear from you this week especially because next week we're going to get a little bit more practical and hands-on and what that means for our generations to come together. And so if there's anything you want to bring to me this week, I'll see how we can put it together um, into our service for next week. But the idea here is that I wanted to give first the biblical foundation for what that means to be intergenerational. And then next week, we're going to get real practical on what that can look like for us. But to encourage you to say, 
God has given us, not every church has the generations present like we have them in this room today and on, a, on any Sunday that we have. And so I want us to steward that gift well and to continue to live deeper and more fully into what it means to be three generations or more united here at West Hills and in this time and place. So please join me in prayer. God, I think about the Trinity and how in the mystery of it, God, we have this understanding of how you pour your love. The Father and the Son are so united in the love and the Spirit. And God, how you have called us into that community to join you and to be with you. God, thank you for this gift at West Hills of all the generations that you have brought to this community for this time and in this place. Help us to understand the gift that it is and how we can become both teacher and learner, both guide and student, to care for and be cared for by one another. Jesus, help us to trust in that process. Help us to be open and courageous to live into it more deeply. And God, encourage us as we go. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.